Ready? All right, yeah. Let's do this thing. Good evening, everybody. I'm Father Charlie Horton, and that is Dr. Karen Eifler, and we are the directors of the Garaventa Center for Catholic Intellectual Life and American Culture here at the University, and we are your hosts uh, this evening. And a little housekeeping, uh, as is our custom, to begin. If you are a K through 12 teacher of any description and would like PDUs, free PDUs, professional development units, a special arrangement uh, with the School of Education here at the university, you can get those uh, PDUs by attending any Garaventa Center uh, event, including this one. And so if you'd like to get PDUs, you can uh, sign the sheet, which I believe is right over there, and we'll get those out to you uh, in the morning. Uh, coming attractions. Uh, next Tuesday, November 5th at 7.15 p.m., right here, uh, we have Linda Pitt Donaldson's uh, Walking with Two Feet of Love, following in the footsteps of Dorothy Day to end homelessness, which is being co-sponsored with Providence Health and Catholic Charities. It's going to be an extraordinary event. If you don't know who Dorothy Day is, uh, she was one of the uh, great American women and one of the spiritual and social justice giants of the 20th century. And so uh, that'll be a wonderful event. This event, um, while it's sponsored by the Garaventa Center, isn't strictly speaking a Garaventa Center event per se. It's a Beckman Humor Project event. Uh, the Beckman uh, Humor Project tries to harness the power of humor to transform the world. So we're, we're pretty ambitious. Um, <laughs> I don't want it. <laughs> and and one of the ways that we that we that we work on that is through this lecture series of which tonight's talk is a part. We try to have a lecture right around Halloween every year. That's a you know a good you know substantive academic lecture, but which is also Halloweeny and is uh, and is and is funny. Uh, last year, uh, it's Frankenstein. Uh, next year, Swamp Thing. And, uh, and, and, and this year uh, is going to be uh, a zombies. Um, people have long noticed that a lot of uh, technologies are anticipated in the natural world. Like Squids and octopi had suction cups perfected long before human beings came up with the idea. And bats and dolphins had echolocation long before human beings had radar and sonar. And famously, um, Velcro uh, the inventor of Velcro got the idea by walking through a meadow and getting uh, burrs stuck to his trousers. Um, conversely, apparently Einstein once said that the zipper is the greatest invention in the history of humanity precisely because it has no natural analog. There are no zippers in nature. But he probably uh, said that before DNA was discovered. Yes. So what is true of uh, technological innovation and technology, humanity's technological imagination might also be true of humanity's literary imagination. That nature might anticipate us there. Uh, regard to uh, zombies. Uh, we'll, we'll find out uh, tonight. Our speaker tonight is UP's own professor, uh, Ryan Kenton, uh, Dr. K. Uh, Woo! Okay. 
who's a member of the biology department here at the university. And uh, here at Medical Center loves the biology department. He's done some amazing work with the biology department. Um, um, he's uh, a teacher both of microbiology and of the microbiology laboratory. And his lectures focus not only on the pathogens that can infect humans, but also on the many beneficial microbes needed for life on this planet. And in the microbiology laboratory, uh, his students are focused on finding and isolating uh, potentially new antibiotics uh, from our local environment that can destroy common human pathogens. And there are very few scientific projects going on right now that have such profound implications for, for human health and for the, the, uh, the future of humanity. And, uh, and so, uh, please uh, help me to welcome Dr. K as he speaks to us on biology and zombies and other parasitic parasites. All right, thank you. All right, you did it to yourselves. Here we are. So, uh, thank you to the Garavanto Center. Thank you, Karen. Thank you, Father Charlie. Um, so, we're talking biology, the biology of zombies and other parasites. And so, as Father Charlie brought up, uh, I teach microbiology. We traditionally look at a lot of really disgusting things. We smell really disgusting things in the lab. And yet, when I gave a practice talk to my micro students on Monday, it was bad. Like, not bad as in my presentation. They wanted to leave the room. So, I'm just giving you warning. I will give you warning after warning. The things you're going to see have given me nightmares. I made the mistake of searching for all this on my computer using regular tabs and how all my searches, all my feeds say parasites, parasites, zombies, parasites. Which I'm cool with some of them, but other things are just way overboard. So... I will give you warning after warning after warning. We have videos of terrible things. If you want to leave the room, that's totally cool. Um, but let's just go with that. So uh, here we are. We're going to talk about zombies. So let's start off with the CDC, because the CDC is taking this seriously. So we know the CDC, yes? So here we are, Center for Disease Control. This is actually their website looking at zombie preparedness. So. This is, of course, a joke. This is a tongue-in-cheek type of thing. But they actually use this as an educational purpose to basically prepare people for e e uh, emergencies. So some type of catastrophe. The same things you might do to prepare against a zombie horde might help you in an earthquake preparedness. Might help you if a flood was to go on in terms of how to find food, how to stay safe. But they've taken it very seriously. In fact, they've taken it so seriously that let's just watch the director talk about this for a second because we are serious. That's all we're going to get. No, that's not the bad news. The increasing number of citizens in remote areas are disappearing. As more people disappear, the number of gruesome, unexplained deaths is increasing, especially at night. We've identified the perpetrators as difficult to kill, flesh eating zombies. Unfortunately, the number of undead is rapidly increasing, and the victims have been reappearing. Seeing a breakdown of peacekeeping and medical services throughout. I just don't know to take them seriously, or you know, it's for educational purposes, and they're trying to give us a scenario. We're going to say, okay, thank you very much. Um, but and they've used this for a number of years. It's it's a K twelve education program. They're trying to get kids involved. They're trying to help out kids. But let's let's move on. Let's talk about some history of zombies because there is a lot of background here. I think a lot of people know zombies most from movies. Yes, we all love a good zombie movie. I think that's why we're mostly here, because we like our zombies. So zombies have been around for a long time. So the ancient Greeks talked about the undead. They were terrorized of this. They wrote about this over and over again, that the undead came back to life. They were haunting them, making battle with them, whatever it might be. Um, we go to the Bible. So the book of Ezekiel talks about bones coming to life and flesh coming back on the bones and muscle coming back on the bone. It was kind of a common theme we see over and over and over again. The big one, though, that a lot of people put a lot of stock in the actual history of zombies comes to Haitian folklore. So this idea of voodoo, that the voodoo priests were somehow able to bring people back to life, they had control of them, could make their do their biddings, whatever it might be. And although nothing's 100% been proven how this has happened, there has been a number of cases where it appears as though someone did, in fact, 
appear to be dead for quite a while and then come back. And so we now know that there's been documented cases in Japan, South Korea, as well as some in Haiti, where particular toxins can actually lower your heart rate to such a degree that it appears as though you are dead. People have been buried, have basically been buried alive, some of them actually passing away, others waking up in a morgue. So there's been three cases in Japan where people have woken up in a morgue after eating the wrong part of a puffer fish, right? So if you go to get sushi, kind of the big famous thing is like, if the chef is good enough, he can prepare a puffer fish for you, right? And if you don't die, everything's good. And so sure enough, you might not die, but you go into such a state that although it appears you're dead, there's been three people who've woken up in the morgue. So if someone had bad intentions and they were there when you woke up, you might say, I'm now your voodoo master, do what I do, because you were dead and now you're alive. Who knows? So, first written about in 1697 is Spirits and Ghosts, but the first time zombie was actually used in the English language was in 1819. Uh, we've had a number of books on zombies, not a ton between 1819 and 1932, but in 1932, the first movie came out, and this really started bombarding the zombie theme kind of forward. So White Zombie was not a zombie movie like you think of. It was a woman who was a zombie who was eating dinner with her husband, talking about what it's like to be dead. There was no eating brains and running around infecting people. So very different than what we're used to. What we're used to is the 1968 Night of the Living Dead. So this truly started what we consider to be the modern day zombie theme. So George A. Romero had a number of movies and his first one terrorized people and kind of brought a whole new genre of that zombie theme to life. And since then, we've gone overboard with the zombie world. So, Dawn of the Dead originally was a Romero movie. They remade it back in, I don't know, 2000 or something. This is one of the first movies I remember is like, I really like zombie movies. Like, this is the one. I watched it too many times. Um, but we go on and on. Zombies were slow. Back in 1968, they were, you know, the horde that can barely move anywhere. We jump forward, 28 days later, they are the fastest things on the planet all of a sudden. They are racing, they are biting, they are ripping you apart. It's a whole different type of genre. We now have dancing zombies, singing zombies. We've gone really far with this. So Michael Jackson doing his thing. Uh, I've had a lot of conversations recently. Some people are big fans, some people aren't. Looking at you, Dave Wynn. Um, Shaun of the Dead, I'm a big fan. World War Z has changed it all over again. So when World War Z came out, another whole set of movies came out. After this, the fast zombie now has kind of become the zombie that we're writing about. Um, have we seen World War Z? Dave, when? <laughs> Zombieland. Zombieland 2 just came out. I've heard who just saw this. Boom. So, Father Charlie, there we go. Susan, big fan of Zombieland. Again, fast zombies. The eye zombies, so now we're detective zombies, right? We're figuring out things. <laughs> we're a big fan of that one. I'm going to go the other direction to Walking Dead. I'm a, uh, this has been around for a long time. I think we're on season 10 now or something, something that no one thought would have been imaginable a decade ago that we've liked zombies this much. My personal current favorite by far, Santa Cruz Die. If you have not done this, it is time to go home, leave my talk, it's not worth it. Go binge watch Santa Clarita Diet because it is something else. And so in all these, zombies come in different forms and fashions in terms of how they became a zombie, how did they get there. By far, the medical zombies seem to take over the genre. So something chemical, but more often than not, it's a biological means. We love viruses these days. Everyone jumps to a virus. Um, if you actually, if you watch a zombie movie and they actually look inside of a microscope, it is typically a little microscope that you could barely see anything with, and yet they see one of the smallest things that we know about a virus. And it's always a virus that actually infects bacteria, never actually infects humans at all, which, again, I'm a microbiologist, so it blows my mind, whatever. <laughs> so, the list goes on and on. Every so often, radioactivity is to blame for the zombies. We have our radioactive zombies, we go from there. We have our typical flesh eaters that are looking for things. A lot of times it's brains. For some reason, it's got to be brains. Uh, we got our Eternals. You can't kill them. We got our Shufflers. You got your Runners. It goes on and on and on and on. Survivors, have we seen Warm Bodies, the rom-com of zombie films? There we go. So the dead have died. They're now coming back. If you weren't quite a skeleton, you can now love again and bring back peace and harmony. Yeah, okay. So... You got your swimmers, your floaters, your partials, your crawlers, your skeletals, your growers, your arms, your diggers, your experimentals. Sometimes we go there. And then, of course, you have your horde of just everything together. So, and I think uh, Walking Dead really has the horde down well. Um, they are slower in that one, which I'm a big fan of, not your fast zombies. But I'm not going to go into human zombies yet. We're going to save this till the end, the idea that how could this potentially happen. But I want to talk about some 
actual zombies that we see in the animal kingdom. So, again, this isn't going to be pleasant. So, the first three, snails, brine sheep, and crickets. We are talking worms. So this is a parasitic worm going inside of these things, coming out of these things in terrible ways. Okay. Cockroaches, spiders, and caterpillars. We now have wasps to blame. Wasps are going to do something terrible to these creatures. Things are going to crawl out of them. We'll get into crabs, ants, rats, and eventually humans. But let's start with the most disgusting one. Let's go to worms. Yes? Let's make it happen. So, zombie snails. It happens. They're out there. Um, I don't know if you like snails. I'm okay with snails. Slugs, no. Snails, good. <laughs> A snail... Eye stalks, okay? It's not an eye stalk to see you and know that I'm Ryan and that you're Susan and whatever. These are sensing light and dark. That's all they're able to do, so they can pretty much know that they should stay out of the sun because they're going to desiccate, they're going to dry up, they're going to die. Unfortunately, these eye stalks are going to be the main culprit of the parasitic worm, which is the green banded brood stack, where there are some examples up there that are unfortunately going to invade the eye stalk of these snails. Me and eyes don't get along. I freak out. So this is like the worst thing I could imagine. This is a parasitic flatworm, otherwise known as a helminth. So in microbiology, uh, helminths or these parasitic worms are part of our kind of science. So we do talk about these. Um, the life cycle of this brood sac actually requires two hosts. It wants to get to the bird. So in the bird, it can actually turn into its adult stage. It can actually form eggs. The bird has this worm inside of them. The eggs come out in the bird droppings. The bird droppings end up on a leaf. The snail crawls through it, eats the leaf, picks up the eggs. The brood sacs then form in this caterpillar, which then entices the bird to eat a, only a piece of this snail. And then that process repeats again and again and again. So how, why is this being enticing to the bird? What's actually going to happen here? So let's take a quick look and walk through our first terrible video. <laughs> so we have, uh, maybe if I can do this. So our amber snail. So amber snails are nice. They're land snails. They're walking around. And this can happen to a number of different snails. The eye stalk was small, but this is what it's going to turn into. So this is now a literally dancing eye stalk of the brood sac inside of it. These are the larvae that have moved into the eye stalk who are pulsating back and forth, trying to get the attention of that bird. So they have been zombified. They literally, since they have filled up their eye stalks, they can no longer sense light and dark. They are drawn into the sun, and something we still yet to understand are drawn up into the canopy of whatever tree they happen to be in. They climb and climb and climb, and they hang out on the topmost leaf with their eye stalks pulsating. Here we are utterly disgusting, waiting for that bird to come to snatch them up. The awful thing, well, there's many awful things. <laughs> a, this worm, first of all, castrates this snail because it doesn't want it doing anything else except doing its bidding. When it climbs up there, the bird is only interested in what that caterpillar-like thing is. So it rips off the eye stalk, usually just one. The other brood sac usually then just falls out of that hole, lands on the leaf, desiccates, dries up, but the snail often survives because the bird is not interested in the hard shell of the snail. It wants the eye stalk. It runs away. That snail can recover, com come completely back, and then do it all over again for that next eye stalk to be infected the next time around. So I want to show this video because we talk about these eye stalks, but what's happening is that the brood sac is being forced up into the head portion. So the last thing happens to be the eye stalk, but the brood sacs are actually still active inside the snail itself. So this was a hiker in Taiwan who took a video who didn't understand what they were looking at because I also wouldn't understand what I'm looking at. But there are the brood sacs, but you can see two other brood sacs in the body of the snail that are pulsing back and forth trying to get the attention of that bird. And it's just kind of chilling there because literally it's trying to climb up the best it can. It's on the side of a wall right here, waiting for yet another bird to come and rip it apart. Oh, Moving on. How's that for the first one? There we go. So we got your zombie snails. So we're staying in the room. We're okay. Let's keep going. Zombie sea monkeys. Who's kept the sea monkeys before? Really? 1980 babies? No? Okay, there we go. So sea monkeys are brine shrimp. Here are brine shrimp. They are fish food, essentially. They were great pets in the 80s, maybe today. Um, unfortunately, a form of tapeworm can zombify them. So, Flamingo lepis ligoidus, hard to say, is a parasitic tapeworm that, again, requires two different hosts to actually get to where it needs to go. So, 
the brine shrimp, here we are, um, is going to be one of our first parasitic zombie masters, but there's actually a second master involved as well. There's a fungus, a species of microsporidian, that is a pathogenic fungus that will infect the brine shrimp at the same time. And we'll talk about kind of what each one is doing, but it takes both of these zombie masters to actually make its way to the final host, where it can actually then form into its adult tapeworm self and do its thing. So what are we looking at? So the tapeworm, and we'll show some pictures of a tapeworm in just a minute. We're going to pause on that for a second. But the tapeworm has released eggs. The eggs are in the water. The brine shrimp see the eggs. They eat the eggs. The eggs then hatch into their larval form, which does look like a small tapeworm. We'll show better pictures later on. Here is the head portion, essentially the hooks that are grabbing onto, I think, its brother. It then has some suckers on the side to then suck the nutrients out of the host, whatever it might be. So it basically locks into this brine shrimp, and it does a number of things. So it is zombifying it. It is, again, unfortunately castrating the brine shrimp, so it's only concerned about doing its bidding. It's going to turn the brine shrimp bright red, which, yes, sounds confusing, but a translucent organism in the water versus a bright red in the organism in the water, who is going to get eaten by a bird? That bright one, right? Not only does it make it turn bright right, it also causes it to swarm. And so... Normally, a lot of creatures think there is safety in numbers. That's not true when you're a bunch of red brine shrimp. You don't want to be in a swarm because a bird's going to swoop down, eat all of you, and that's going to be the end of you. But they actually cause them to go into these swarms. So the brine shrimp have now turned this lovely red color. They start to swarm. And at first, the swarms are kind of lower in the water until the fungal master takes over. They trigger that brine shrimp to move as close to the surface as possible. It's basically looking for the highest oxygen level, and so the swarm moves to the top. The fungus wants to do this because as the fungus, before it gets eaten, is releasing its spores, the spores can then rain down on other potential brine shrimp who have not been convinced to go to the top, infecting more. The tapeworm is happy because they're now in swarms, they're now closest to the surface, to then act as a vector for their final host, the flamingo, to come around, swoop them up, eat them. The tapeworm then fully develops inside that flamingo, and the process develops again and again and again. So the next picture I'm going to show you is a tapeworm, the adult phase stage of this organism. So in microbiology a number of years ago, I showed a much less creepy picture than I'm about to show you, and a student dropped down, like legit fainted. So I'm just, again, putting my warnings out there. There's nothing pleasant about the following picture. Here we are. So the adult stage of the tapeworm. There's a number of different species of tapeworms. So the scolex, the head portion of this tapeworm, has the essentially claws to hook into the intestinal tract of whatever animal it's infecting. It has the four suckers on the side to basically lock in, suck the intensive nutrients, feed off of that animal for X amount of time. There's even a more disgusting zombie look of that. The unfortunate part is that tapeworms are hermaphroditic. So this means that they don't need to find a partner. So all they are doing is sucking the last part of their tail actually breaks off once per day, producing an egg, and that bird dropping one per day, the tapeworm is coming off over and over and over again for the next. And you can have many tapeworms in your body at a time, right? It's not just one tapeworm. Flamingos can have dozens to hundreds of tapeworms in their system at one time. We know humans get tapeworms, correct? Facebook, like, every two years says, the next new diet, tapeworms. <laughs> Don't. Uh, the record so far in humans is 27 feet. Just, just saying, not the diet I want to go on. Are you ready to move on? Yeah. All right, zombie crickets. Here we are. So, you know, who? I like crickets. They're nice. They're peaceful. They seem okay. Unfortunately, so do other animals, and they decide to zombify them. So, the horsehair worm. This is the one that is polluting my feeds on my phone over and over again. So... They start off as parasitic larvae. This is what the grasshopper is going to pick up. Again, the life cycle, as a lot of these worms, requires two different hosts to actually make its way through life. It's going to first require some other insect. It's often a damselfly, a mayfly. Mosquitoes can also act as this first vector. Um, this picks up the egg, the larval form in this. The cricket picks this up. The worm then forms into its adult self inside the cricket and comes out as that. So, the horsehair worm. Let's just take a quick peek at it. So, here we are, horsehair worm. 
So we're going to start off. A worm is already in the water. It releases an egg sac. It drifts down. Some unfortunate creature is going to consume this. So this could be larval states of damselflies, of mosquitoes, or whatever it might be, consume some of these eggs. Inside that creature, that larval starts to, the larval form starts to develop. You can see almost the alien from the movie Aliens kind of pinchers coming out to literally grab onto the side of them. They're locked inside of that organism and will stay with the organism as it develops into its adult form. So the worm wants to get out of the water to find that cricket because it has to get to a cricket. So it's going to pick some insect that flies, that leaves the water, goes elsewhere. It's going to land in the bushes, in the grass, wherever it might be, and eventually, hopefully, a cricket's going to come along and consume that damselfly, that mayfly, that mosquito, whatever it might be. This process takes 10 to 12 days. And so here we are, we are a cricket, we're eating a damselfly down here in the bucket. We're apparently seeing him consume this cricket. Now the zombie part starts. So crickets don't want to go to water. If they jump into water, they're going to die, right? They cannot swim, they're not very good at this. So it unfortunately, as the adult form, it has to be in water. If the worm comes out on dry land, it will die. So it's got to make its way back. Crickets don't want to go to water, so they convince the cricket to go to water. They basically send assorted signals that we still don't 100% understand, but it drives the cricket to go towards that water. So let it be a river, let it be um, a lake, let it be a swimming pool, as we're about to see. Let it be dog dishes of water. The the things I've seen, I tell you. Um, So we are driven to the side of a pool here. The cricket's going to jump into the water, and this is where the nightmare begins. The water triggers the worm to exit the cricket. At first, we're like, oh, great, okay. Let the magic happen. So the worm begins to come. And we're not talking about a centimeter or an inch. It's going to grow somewhere between 2 to 12 inches. This thing was in the crickets. How did this happen? I don't understand. It just keeps coming and coming and coming. And then it's like, yes, and it swims off. Again, there can be more than one worm inside the cricket. Here we are currently hatching, I think four or five eventually make their way out of that cricket. Each one being many inches long. I don't understand how this happens. But they just keep coming. And the really messed up part is that the cricket can survive this if he actually gets back to land before he drowns. They die because they drown. They don't die because this worm, this thing, just exited their body. They're dying because they drowned. So if the cricket does make it back to land, if it grabs a little thing of grass, it can climb its way out. Um... You know, (laughs) no, no, I don't. Let's move on. Zombie cockroaches. So I can, I'm I'm okay with this one. Like cockroaches can go away. Like, you know, I'm not a fan. So be it. So, but let's see what happens. So we have moved away from worms. Our first three was worms. We've covered those. We're going to move on to wasps now. Life gets better, but not good. It's still going to be rough. All right. So. What's going to happen here? The jewel wasp. This is a form of parasitic wasp that has to attack the American cockroach. So here's our cockroach. It's going to use this as a host for its larva. So here is the really pretty, it's sometimes called the emerald jewel wasp, or just the jewel wasp. Um, We are going to have an epic battle between a wasp and a cockroach. And unfortunately, most of the time, the wasp is going to win this fight. So let's just take a peek at what happens here. So... This wasp naturally lives in the ground. It had, this is a freshly formed female wasp. The interesting thing about this wasp is that in all of its studies over the decades, they've only found four males ever. So this organism reproduces essentially through cloning. It makes a copy of itself. It never has to see a male. And a new female is born again and again and again. So a single female has come out of the ground. She's now looking for a host not to eat, but to lay her next egg on to start this cycle all over again. So she has identified a cockroach. The battle begins. She's starting to hunt that cockroach. And what's going to happen is two different stings. So she's going to try to catch the cockroach the first time, give it an initial sting, which she's about to do, which is just meant to stun it. So it stops fighting. So they wrestle around for a while. The stinger gets inside the cockroach. There she is. You can see the stinger shoving up inside that thing and essentially paralyzes that cockroach. Doesn't kill it, but just stops it from thrashing around. The next sting is the messed up one. 
Her stinger is essentially a sense organ. She's going to jab it in the back of the neck into the brain of the cockroach, feel around for the specific part of that brain to release her venom on to stop its motivation to walk. Not its ability to walk. The thing can still walk, still move, still breathe, still do whatever. It just doesn't want to. It will literally just stay there unless you tell it to move, which is what she's going to do. So we have made a zombie cockroach in all sense of the word. Zombie is here. So the zombie is, oh, sorry, the cockroach is now chilling. The, the wasp moves away for a minute to kind of give it some time for the venom to set in. The cockroach kind of wakes up from that first stun, but it can't move, all right? It doesn't have any ambition to move. It starts cleaning itself. It doesn't go anywhere. The wasp also is apparently biding her time, cleaning herself, thinking about what's going to happen next. And so you actually, the wasp now does a check. They want to make sure the cockroach is in the right state to actually control it. So the wasp is going to go up to this cockroach, go up to one of its antennas, grab it with its teeth, and it's not strong enough by itself to break that antenna off. It's going to vibrate its wings really, really fast. That's going to cause a motion of her teeth, essentially, to basically break off, here we go, snap off the end of that antenna. Why does she do this? She's doing it so then she can drink the blood, it's not truly blood, but blood of the cockroach to sense how much poison is inside of this thing. Because here she is, she's sensing, she's drinking too much poison, and this thing's gonna die before she zombie walks it back to her nest. Too little, it's gonna wake up, attack her, probably kill her or get away. So she's sensing it, sometimes an additional sting is needed, sometimes not, in this case it worked out. And so now she just steers it. A little bit of motion and that cockroach just follows her away. And so he brings, she brings that cockroach back to the burrow that she literally just came out of, and it just follows her. There's nothing it can do. As it's moving in, it's moving in, so now we have really cool, I'm sure this was some test tube they were doing this in for the actual video, but they get inside here. And again, this is not food for her, but it's going to act as food for the next generation. So she is going to lay a single egg sac on the underside of that cockroach, which is a lovely sight. Um, as that egg is laid, she basically says, my job is done. She now exits the burrow and she will begin to close it up, right? Because she doesn't want anyone else to find this cockroach. She doesn't want to be food for anyone else. Um, the cockroach will stay essentially paralyzed until that offspring turns into its larval form and begins to eat away at that cockroach. And so the cockroach will be eaten alive down the road. She finds sticks, she finds rocks, she closes up that cave. It takes about her a minute to do it, but she will close it up so no other potential insects find this cockroach. So there's that. Uh, so they don't live that long, but that her job is done as an adult wasp. She did her thing. Exactly. But the cockroach can still win sometimes. So some groups at Vanderbilt have been studying the cockroach. If the wasp can truly sneak up on the cockroach, the cockroach has no chance. It's over. It's not going to happen. And the wasp is going to get her two stings in. Very, very rarely will that cockroach win if the wasp can truly sneak up to this organism, to the cockroach. But if the cockroach senses the wasp, things don't go so well for the wasp. So that kick will definitely deter, if not kill, that wasp. And I don't know if you noticed the... the uh, the spikes that are completely lying in the cockroach's legs can do significant damage to that wasp as he begins to kick her away. So, the cockroach can win sometimes, so I'm, I'm okay with this epic battle, but let's move on. So, we're still on wasps, we're still doing this, we're talking zombie spiders. So, a lot of people went, uh, it's just a spider. We're not even to the bad part yet. So we got a couple of spiders, different spiders, but unfortunately zombies can't, or spiders can't be zombified. So a spider wasp, and there's a number, there's hundreds if not thousands of different species of these, each attacking a different type of spider, is a parasitic wasp that is essentially going to lay its egg on the underside of the spider. So here's that parasitic wasp, and it's not going to... Again, not going to eat it itself, but it's going to act as food for the next generation. And so what the wasp has done is laid an egg. The egg is now hatched, turned into larval form, and is feeding off of the spider. But it doesn't want to kill the spider. It needs the spider, this zombie spider, and the, in the saliva are assorted hormone-like substances directing the spider to not make its traditional web, but instead to make the strongest web possible in any configuration it wants to support as much weight as possible. 
So most of the time, what that's going to look like is just a couple of strings that are very secure, because as that larval develops, it's going to completely consume that spider, suck out everything it can, let that spider go, weave its own cocoon, so its cocoon has this more yellow silk versus the spiders, and it's going to hang itself off of the forest floor so it doesn't get potentially consumed by some other thing coming along. It is safer being a foot up in the air than actually on the ground. And so this wasp will then hatch, continue that cycle, find another spider, and life goes on and on and on. See, spiders aren't so bad. Spiders are okay. This is the problem, child. So, zombie caterpillars. So, zombie caterpillars, I like, again, I like things, I don't like things. I'm a fan of caterpillars. I'm okay with this. Um, unfortunately, some wasps don't like these. So there are certain, there's a couple of different families of wasps. The uh, Braconide, I can't say that word, is a parasitic wasp that is going to attack caterpillars. In this family are also ones that are going to attack ladybugs, doing a very, very similar thing. The caterpillar one is much more interesting because of what the caterpillar actually does, and we'll see this in just a minute. But again, there's two zombie masters. So the actual master that's doing the actual work is a virus. So we are learning more and more about this, so viruses are small, really, really small. We've only kind of learned about what they can do in recent times compared to what we've known about insects for much longer. We actually think viruses are doing a lot more than what we ever thought. This specific virus integrates into the genome of the wasp. So it is permanently a part of the wasp, right? It's integrated into the genome. So in, when the adult wasp is born, the DNA will pop out, form a live active virus, but doesn't do anything to the wasp. It wants to be injected with an egg, or eggs, multiple eggs, into a caterpillar. So the virus is going to go into the caterpillar, and a whole lot of eggs are going to be put inside that caterpillar. So this can happen to a number of different caterpillars. The, the wasp here we're talking about is this lovely little red-ish wasp. But let's just look at this. So here we are. So this is, again, a National Geographic video. There's some scenes where I'm not quite sure how they captured footage. I think it's made up, but most of it's good. <laughs> so the wasp has now attacked it. Um, it has eggs inside of it that are developing into the larval stage. So here are the larva. Again, how is the shot created? I'm not sure. But the larvae are making its way out of this caterpillar. And it's not one, it's not two, it's dozens of larvae that are going to come out of this caterpillar. That's what I was waiting for. So, dozens of these larvae are coming out of this caterpillar. But the caterpillar doesn't die. The caterpillar is turned into a zombie bodyguard. Its job from now on is to protect the larva that came out of the side of its body. So, the larva will immediately start spinning its own cocoon, again, seeing this more of a yellow silk versus the white silk that we saw before. It's gonna spin cocoon kind of over the mass of them. Uh, each one doing individually, but kind of turns into a larger cocoon with dozens of these larvae inside that will take about seven days to turn into the adult form of the wasp. So this caterpillar has seven days of bodyguarding to do, but it's not going to eat. So it's basically starving to death during these seven days and will eventually pass away. So not only is it protecting it, it's adding its own layer of cocoon on top of this to make sure they are as well protected as possible. So we think this virus is actually causing it to do this. It's the virus and not the actual wasp that is capable of doing this. The crazy thing about this situation is that the virus also changes the saliva of the caterpillar. The saliva now literally smells different, and as it's doing its assorted activities, the saliva attracts hyperparasitic wasps that are meant to come to eat the parasitic wasp cocoons. So what it's actually trying to stop are the new wasps coming that it literally called, so it has to protect them in the process. And so what this caterpillar, and there we go. So this caterpillar usually goes up on its haunches, I'm gonna say, and slams down the other wasps that are trying to get to the first wasp. I like to think of Harry Potter and the whomping tree. It's literally kind of up there, just bam, bam, any of these wasps that come by. And if a couple are lost, it's not the end of the world because literally dozens of wasps are there. And it does this for a full seven days. And unfortunately at that point, it passes away and the wasps are usually born within a few hours of that time. Are we just awing that? So it's not doing it. It's just the nature of the virus. It has programmed the caterpillar to protect, but at the same time, who knows in terms of evolution why this has occurred, but it's calling in the predators of its actual, of those first wasps. So it's literally calling card. So you got wasp one inside the cocoon, a parasitic wasp. 
The caterpillar's protecting it. It's now new saliva is a calling card for a secondary wasp that wants to consume that first parasitic wasp. And so it is protecting that one. What do you think, the virus? We don't know a lot of these things. <laughs> right, exactly. Like, I'm sure it, or through evolution, it's not that the virus did this on purpose, but like, it is a calling card, and now they know to do that. Would make sense. Let's move on. We got a couple more. Zombie crabs. It just goes on and on and on. So we have moved away from the worms. We've moved away from the wasp. We're now doing our own thing. So we got some zombie crabs. So I'm okay with crabs. <laughs> I'm okay with them. But unfortunately, some barnacles are not. So there are some forms of parasitic barnacles. There's multiple species affecting different types of crabs that will zombify this crab. Good. Um, to basically take care of its offspring. So this is not a barnacle you see on the side of a ship or on a pier or something. These are a whole different breed. This is that parasitic barnacle on the back underside of this crab. So the first happens, so a the larval state of this barnacle is released. Many, many thousands are in the water. They're going to land on the crab, find little kinks in its armor, essentially, burrow its way into the crab. If it is a female crab, it basically says assorted hormones are stopping the egg production of that crab. So it no longer makes its own eggs. The barnacle convinces the crab that I am your new egg sac, protect me. If it happens to infect a male crab, it castrates that male crab, and assorted chemical signals are secreted into it that it literally changes it into a feminized crab. It will start to change shape, it will change colors, it will stop producing anything male-related, and not make its own eggs, but again, have all the appropriate signals to take care of an egg sac, and now protects that um, particular uh, barnacle. So here, kind of blown up, is that parasitic barnacle, kind of latched on on the underside of this crab. And in... This is a great shot that was done. So every two weeks, the barnacle releases up to 30,000 eggs over and over and over again. And when crabs release eggs, they traditionally move all their legs to kind of stir up the waters around them. So this was a really good shot. The second those eggs were released, the crab kind of stirs up everything. And with the bath light in there, you can see a whole lot of eggs being released all at one time. So the next video I want to show you sums up some things we've talked about. We're not done yet. But this video is through, who has taken a lot of these pictures um, through National Geographic, a fantastic photographer who made these guys. Um, his name was Anand Varma. And he, it's a great 20-minute video just on what he's done. He took 33,000 pictures of about five different parasitic organisms for a 2014 edition of National Geographic on parasitic organisms. And to try to convince his boss how much work he's putting into this project, he put all 33,000 pictures, condensed them into a five-minute video where every second 15 pictures are shown to you. So it's 15 frames per second. I decided to put them to dubstep music. <laughs> so this is an abbreviated minute version of that. We're going to walk through the cricket so you all know what's going to happen. This isn't going to be a surprise, right? What's going to crawl out the back end of them? Bunch of worms. Bunch of worms. <laughs> so we're going to move into something we haven't talked about. There's another parasite we did not discuss that actually causes frogs to grow a second pair of legs. So you will see this frog growing a second pair of legs. It's not necessarily zombified, but it's basically, we think, making it easier for a bird to catch the past the parasite on to the next animal and so forth. Got extra frog legs. Got extra frog legs, very true. Uh, we're going to go into the ladybug, which is very similar to the caterpillar, and then they finally go into the crab as it's kind of getting ready to release its eggs. So for this, it's definitely worth hearing the music, because why not? I have things as loud as things will go. Um, let's see what happens. So, again, 15 frames per second. That worm's going to come and go and come. But just the amazing things he's done to actually try to take these pictures and the lighting he needed, the tweezers he's using to move the worm around for the right shot is not a job I want at all. But there it is. It's just doing it. And the amount of worms, again, is disgusting, but about that made the shot for National Geographic. And again, it just keeps coming. Um, the next somewhat better one, I think, is the frog one. So the frog, again, looks somewhat benign there and begins to slowly grow its second pair of legs due to that parasite. Is that a good ah uh or a bad ah? Uh? I'm not sure about that one. It's a crazy ah. Uh. So there it is. The legs are coming out. Um, so the ladybug, again, had a uh, parasitic wasp. 
The larva is coming out, cocooning itself. It does zombify that ladybug to protect it, and so it's only having to protect one cocoon. The different light is him shining a laser, trying to get a really cool picture. And then again, the crab is he's trying to set up the tank, waiting for it to release the eggs, getting the appropriate backlighting. And then when it happens, he gets a number of shots as this crab begins to stir up its assorted thing. So awesome, disgusting, all kind of there. So um, I thought that's a nice kind of video there. Oh, he touched a lot of things. And he did all of this in different hotel rooms around the country. So, like, you hear about terrible things that happen in hotel rooms. Like, terrible things happen in hotel rooms. Like, that video is really disturbing on that end. Um, so, a couple more zombies to talk about. I think this is probably the one that's most well-known when it comes to zombie creatures are these zombie ants. And so this is what the cover was of the talk. This is what the flyer went around. So ants can be zombified by a form of fungus. So different cordyceps funguses can infect a number of different insects. This is not just ants, it's caterpillars and wasps and butterflies and crickets and da 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 The list goes on and on and on and on. But that cordyceps fungus at the end of the day is going to kill that animal. And it's going, as it comes out, the fruiting body of the fungus will eventually kind of be the largest thing that comes out of it. The fruiting body hatches and then thousands upon thousands of spores will shoot out of this, covering the forest floor to hopefully infect the next round of creatures that were happening to walk by. So again, this has been a part of a lot of different nature series. This one happens to be from Netflix. It's the newest one with the highest resolution. Um, and it's pretty decent. Um, so ant colonies are, are made of millions upon millions of ants, correct? And so an ant will start to act kind of funky, jittering, uh, not moving correct. And if its siblings see this happening, it will take the ant and try to remove it from a colony. If the ant gets away by himself, they're going to move up a tree, go to the end of some branch, and do something called the death grip. And so here we are, budding that twig as the last thing it does in its life. All during this time, the fungus has been growing throughout the ant. And at this time, it actually now branches out of any spot it can, essentially merging it, sticking it permanently to that leaf. So now the ant's not going anywhere, it's not blowing around, the ant is dead. But now begins the actual fruiting body as it begins to hatch out of that ant's head. So the, kind of the area right behind the head. And so this whole process from when it gets infected to when this comes is about seven days. So this is about a one day process as this fruiting body is coming out and the actual spores will be formed right here as they begin to grow and shut out. And just to kind of pause here and appreciate what's happening, thousands of spores, tens of thousands of spores are gonna shoot out at 25 miles per hour. <laughs> this is a nuts number, right? And a lot of these videos, they say, and the, and the ant climbs into the canopy. Well, most ants and most cordyceps only go about one to two feet off the forest floor. Because if you go 100 feet up in a rainforest and you shoot down even at 25 miles an hour, there's so much coverage that you're not going to hit the other ants down low, right? But a foot and then a straight 25 mile per hour shot all around you, it's usually one square meter of a kill zone, as they say. And any ant that was to walk through that would pick up the spores and the cycle would continue in again. So entire ant colonies have been wiped out due to these fungus, as well as other creatures, because of how effective the fungus is. So, not only, like I said, this can happen to ants, but there's a number of other, another number of creatures. I think in this shot, they might show multiple ants on the same tree, all being infected at particular times, all shooting off fungus. And it's not always one fruiting body that comes. A lot of this depends on the actual species of the fungus, how many will form. I think this is a cicada or something, and the fungus is actually still developing. Here's some multiple fruiting bodies coming out of whatever. I can't tell anymore what this insect is. I think we're supposed to think these are spores coming off, but I'm not convinced at that shot in reality. I'm not sure. Um, but here we are. I think this is another insect, obviously, but I'm not. That looks potentially ant-like. Uh, there's a beetle coming up. So there's, yes, something else, maybe potentially walking stick as the cordyceps are coming out. This really cool beetle has now apparently had better times, better days. Um, and unfortunately, the shots kind of come and come and go. Um, but it, so again, they have zombified them, wanting them to climb up. And what's really interesting is that the fungus makes the ant go to a specific spot. So it's looking for exactly 95 to 96% humidity. And so the ants will climb until it hits that specific spot. It's looking for something within a 10 degree Fahrenheit window of where it wants to be. Uh, we tend to see these just in Thailand and parts of Brazil is kind of where the main um, cordyceps are, uh, which is good. They're not here. I'm thankful for this. Uh, but really, really specific features that this fungus is literally making this ant do so it can spread and form the next um, colony. 
one of the coolest shots I think this photographer got was cordyceps coming out of this ant. So the ant is not glowing from the inside. What has happened is that the fungus, with its mycelium, has completely hollowed out this ant. It's just fill of fungus filaments inside this ant. The eye socket essentially is empty now, except for the fungus growing behind it. So on the back side, he's shined a laser onto this ant. You're seeing the light come out anywhere it can, and it's coming out through that eye hole because there's no longer an eye there. And then he has, you know, he lit something on fire to create the smoke effect with some of the back leg. Like, it's just a really cool picture. But um, it's, I think it's a great Halloween picture, like, this could happen to you. Kind of thing. Um, and so this has actually been the basis for a number of movies and video games. So recently, the video game Last of Us has used this as like their main driving force. I see some head nodding in the room. I don't know this game, but it kind of will turn you into a sort of things. A really good zombie movie. Have we seen this one? So this is based off cordyceps infecting humans, getting to the girl with all the gifts, is based on this idea of cordyceps somehow infecting us. But the real winner is the 1963 Japanese classic that none of us have seen called Mantango. But I'm going to show you a little bit of the trailer because why not? So it makes me want to watch this whole movie, but I will just show you the best parts. So it's your typical Gilligan Island type of tale, right? We are stuck on a boat, we crash land. Mantango. <laughs> so we move forward. So here we are. Here we are. It's so Gilligan's Island. Right. Animal. I'll leave you there. So we're in suspense, correct? So I'm going to ruin it. Right? Because I know we all want to go home and watch it, but we should just watch the best part now. Yes? Okay. So, I'm going to ruin it. Don't watch if you really want to see it. Um, so, or otherwise known as Attack of the Mushroom People. So, they're told not to eat the mushrooms, not to eat the mushrooms. Sure enough, they eat the mushrooms. Bada bing, bada boom. Here they are. The Mushroom People. I've literally ruined this for everyone. I know this is what we were doing on Halloween. We no longer have to watch this movie. Whoa, is that what happens if you eat the mushrooms? In 1963 Japan, this is what is happening. You know, you, you might be into it. You might not. Uh, there's a really good part right here. Hold on. He's fighting. He's fighting. They're tough. Oh, they're real strong. <laughs> Wait for it. Oh! oh no! Oh, the next scene would have blown your mind. Uh, oh. <laughs> She's eating one. And, and, and he leaves everyone behind. He runs away and gets on a boat. I'm like, what? But, but anyway, I've ruined it. I know it's over. I apologize. Um, <laughs> all right. Anyway, um, sorry. Let me get this back. So the last thing I want to talk about, because we are almost there. I know we're pushing time, but here we go. Let's potentially get into the human realm. So zombie rats slash humans. So. Mice, rats, can be infected by the parasite Toxoplasma gondii, or gondii. Have we heard of this organism? Yes, some of us are saying yes, yes. So this is a parasite. It's definitely one of the world's most common. We now believe a third of the world, a third of the humans on this planet, currently have a toxo infection. If you are a normal, healthy individual, you probably will never know. Your body can clear it. It can come back. You can clear it. It can come back. It is when you're immunocompromised or specifically when you are pregnant, you do not want to have a toxic infection. So it must pass from a rodent to a cat. Its final form actually forms in the cat. This is where it wants to be. The cat goes to the bathroom and the essentially eggs version of this is released into its feces. So the rat, when the rat picks this up, so it's going through the street, it picks up the larval, well, not larval form, but its initial form starts to happen in the rat. It makes the rat not be afraid of cat urine anymore. So traditionally, cat urine means run, right, if you're a rodent. It's literally drawn to this. It is drawn to the cat. It is not afraid. It moves towards it. Here's that parasite in one of its eight different life stages because it goes through a lot of different forms. Uh, the problem is if a human, specifically immunocompromised or pregnant, so have, maybe you don't know, but you definitely should know, if you are pregnant, you should never change a litter box. 
yes, especially if you have an outdoor cat. If your cat is always inside, has never eaten a rat before, you're probably okay. But the second your cat goes outside, there's a good chance they're going to come across a rodent, probably catch it and bring it home. Weird, gross, that's what they do. But they're probably going to get toxic at the same time. A pregnant woman clean this litter box. If it gets inside her, you can pass this to the growing fetus. This can cause blindness. It can cause miscarriages. It can cause um, hydrocephaly, so basically an enlarged head of that child. Um, a number of different things that are obviously terrible. In terms of meat, the main people, if you're not pregnant, the other way people tend to get this is if they're eating undercooked pork or sheep in this picture. Um, so the cyst exists within the muscle fat. If you don't cook your pork well enough, you consume this, you can actually get a toxo infection through that. So if your cat ever comes home and there seems to be a, just a rat <laughs> chilling on its head, we know something is wrong, get that cat away from the rat because it's all going to go sour. So the last thing I want to talk about is something that's really become a main focus of at least my field over the last decade or so. So have we heard of the microbiome? Because I have a feeling this is the true zombie. So the microbiome is referring to all of the microscopic organisms living in and on us. And we are outnumbered in terms of actual creatures 10 to 1. So there is 10 times more microscopic things living in and on us than us. So on that scale, we are 10% human. Does that make sense? <laughs> all right. Now you look at all the genetic factors. So all the genes that are expressed from these 10 times more microbes compared to us, it is 100 to 1 more genes doing their things on these microbes compared to what we can do. So what percent human are we now? 100. 1% human. Right? If we actually look at the genes that are being expressed in and on our body every single time. So we now know amazing things. In animal studies, we have alleviated certain forms of... Um, uh, autism, not all forms of it, but we can basically eliminate, bring it back by changing the gut flora in those mice's guts. So by changing what's there, we can change depression, we can change anxiety. Um, with the toxo case, people who have toxo tend to be more risk takers, and it is somewhat linked to schizophrenia, but that's still kind of being completely confirmed. So I have a strong feeling that these microbes, let it be a parasite or the actual good guys that are in our guts, are doing way more to and against us than we would ever imagine. And you think over the next decade or more, we're going to learn a lot more about our true zombie masters in terms of what's happening as we move forward. So the microbiome, vastly important, and I am happy to talk lots more about that. But I want to finally show you Bill Murray, because why not end everything with a Bill Murray clip? So just to show you how good. So this is my new favorite zombie movie. Have we seen The Dead Don't Die? Oh, The Dead Don't Die. So let's just give you a little, little clip of it. Oh, no, no, go back. Come on. 26. All right. What the hell was it? A wild animal? This is really awful. Maybe the worst thing I've ever seen. Oh, was it wild animals? <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking zombies. Thinking zombies. What? <laughs> <laughs> Ghouls. <laughs> it's going to end there. All right, that is it. I am done. I am happy to take questions. Thank you all. We, we have uh, lovely parting gifts for whatever percentage of you is actually. <laughs> Thank you very much. I appreciate it. We want to go home and vomit. Whatever. Whatever happens first. Seriously, nightmares. Um, questions? All right. Yeah. They can't smell it. Uh, a ton of dopamine is released in the mouse, which lowers assorted states, and there's a few other chemicals involved. Yeah. So instead, it just loves cats. Just loves cats. I love cats. Um, do you know anything about the chronic wasting disease? Deer? You, you mean this one? Yeah. Um, so recently, there has been zombie raccoons in Illinois and zombie deer across the Midwest of this country. Uh, distemper seems to be the blame for the raccoons wanting to literally attack you. And chronic wasting disease is affecting a lot of the deer population. Um, a mad cow-like disease, essentially. Um, and they're not afraid. They're foaming at the mouth. They're doing weird things, zombie-like things. And so the news has definitely jumped on the zombie train when it comes to the chronic <laughs> wasting disease. Like, that's a misnomer. But then also the CDC is like, prepare for zombies. <laughs> it's confusing. It is. Anybody else? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Solid deer. Solid deer. 
Yeah. We have a question? Um, I hope so. I, I don't know. Um, I, this has, it has encouraged me to up my parasitism, my para, that part of microbiology, and potentially do some type of parasite um, kind of branch from this. And so I plan to learn a lot more about these organisms. But uh, for now, it's more of a shock and awe campaign just to put that Halloween fright in you. So. <laughs> Many kinds. So, unfortunately, Alaska king crab has a barnacle that does it. Makes me sad. But there's lots of different crabs that can get it. Yep. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you.